Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. Ron, we have reached the end of the year 2022. Yes. And we're releasing this episode just a few days before Christmas. Yes. And John, I know it's almost trite to make this observation these days, but there are some things about our so-called Christmas season that just really irritate me. (laughs) Well, I have noticed you have a Grinch-like tendency. (laughs) But is there something specifically you have in mind? Yeah, specifically. I don't like the implication that I have some onerous duty to be happy at this time of year. (laughs) That sleigh bells ringing and a few of my favorite things are supposed to cheer me up at this happiest time of the year. (laughs) Sometimes, frankly, often I arrive at the end of the year in no mood to be happy. This forced joy irks me. Ah, yes, joy. You know, you and I have an entire series on hope. Yes. And we spent two of those four episodes in Luke chapter two, the infancy narratives, which are passages that often read around Christmas, around this time of year. And their joy and hope go hand in hand. So it's really not entirely unreasonable to be talking about (laughs) joy around Christmas time, albeit maybe not in the way that you're talking about it. Yes, I know. And I also know that you will insist that joy as scripture describes it, has very little to do with joy as it often gets expressed in popular songs. Yeah. I thought we might take an episode at the end of this year to spend some time with that. Well, let's do it. When scripture talks about joy, what does it mean? Is it sleigh bells ringing and a few of my favorite things, as you say, Ron? Or is it something deeper? Well, let's go find out. John, you mentioned that we spent some time with Luke chapter 2, the infancy narratives. Those are fairly familiar to many people. It even got quoted in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Honestly, though, that Christmas special gives that text a fairly significant cultural impact. Sadly, there are probably people who have never heard scripture read in any other context. Very possibly. Yeah. When we went through Luke 2, though, We were focusing on hope, Mm -hmm. and specifically the messianic hopes that were being expressed there. Joy is most definitely a part of the story that we read there also. Well, you know, it begins fairly early in the story. The book of Luke opens with the priest Zechariah performing his duty in the temple when he's suddenly confronted with the angel Gabriel. Gabriel has news for him. He and his wife, who have been married a long time with no children, are about to have a child. And as we'll learn soon enough, this child will be John the Baptist, the one who goes ahead of Jesus announcing his arrival. But Gabriel tells Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And Gabriel later says that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Notice several things about that. Okay. First, we haven't even gotten to the birth of Jesus yet in that story. (laughs) This is just the guy that will go before Jesus and announce his arrival. There is joy even in that. Mm -hmm. Second, though, notice that joy and rejoicing go hand in hand. Yeah. Rejoicing is the expression of joy, legitimate joy, that is. There is sort of a dual joy here. Zechariah and Elizabeth will be glad. We might even say overjoyed to have (laughs) a son. (laughs) But more importantly, 
the role this son will play is so very important. He will turn the hearts of the people to their God and make them ready. It has to be noticed, though, that for anyone who's read Luke before, this is a bittersweet moment. John the Baptist is on one level a very tragic figure. He will be at odds with many, and he'll ultimately be executed. We might even say murdered in a particularly gruesome and unjust way. As is Jesus himself, of course. Right. From the perspective of Luke, this is all known to God. And Mary, for instance, will be warned of the pain that she can look forward to. And yet there is joy nonetheless. Yeah. Well, staying with John the Baptist for a minute, as Luke describes it, and as Elizabeth perceives it, John the Baptist leaps for joy in the womb when Elizabeth first encounters the pregnant Mary, right? Yeah. The unborn infant John is downright joyful when he encounters the one who is his reason for existing. (laughs) Well, with that said, perhaps most significantly, it is with joy that Mary begins her magnificent psalm of praise, the Magnificat. Yeah. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That points to a common connection. Rejoicing, expressing joy, and praising God often go hand in hand. When I'm doing one, I'm likely to be doing the other as well. True. And notice something else, though. Mary's song explicitly invokes Israel's current situation. God is exalting those of humble estate, filling those who are hungry. God is fulfilling the promises to Abraham after Israel has suffered so long. This is joy, but it's joy that is fully aware of the harsh realities facing those who love and worship God. When we actually do get to Luke chapter 2, the angels announce good news of great joy to the shepherds in the field. And speaking of the connection between joy and praising God, the angels go straight into praise. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. There is one part of this Lucan account we haven't mentioned yet. There's a song, a poem, prophecy, whatever you want to call it, by Zechariah. He never mentions joy or rejoicing directly, but that's clearly in the vicinity. What he does do is to invoke some powerful imagery. John the Baptist, his son, will prepare the people. Because he does that, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. I don't know why that image hits so hard, but especially here at Christmas, that imagery of the morning sun coming over the horizon, the dark shadows melting away. I can't find a more powerful metaphor for the kind of joy we're talking about here. Yeah, and Ron, that's no accident. Zechariah's song is making a direct allusion back to the words of Israel's ancient prophets. Okay. In reality, you know, even though we find the song in the New Testament, it fits squarely in the Old Testament prophetic tradition. And it's actually part of the tail end of Old Testament prophecy that John the Baptist and his tradition bring right up to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. John, there's a point in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, it's the Battle of Helm's Deep, where one of the main characters, Aragorn, says after a long night of battle that he wishes the dawn would come. 
And his companion Gimli observes that it might not make such a difference. The clear implication is that they'd just be able to see how many enemies they actually face at that point. (laughs) But Aragorn won't be deterred. He sees great hope in the dawn. And in the end, he's proved right. Help arrives with the dawn. I only cite this because Tolkien clearly grasped how strong this connection is between the sun rising and joy and hope. Well, it's certainly a connection the ancient prophets and poets of Israel made. We find it in several places like Isaiah, Malachi, and Psalms, for example. There's probably no more obvious or powerful image of light breaking in on darkness or piercing or overcoming darkness than the sunrise. With the dawn, darkness is chased away. And Old Testament poetry captures this metaphor as it likens difficult and even desperate human situations to darkness and God's intervention and deliverance as the coming of the morning light. The darkness is only temporary, then the light comes. It's a poetic picture both of hope and of the joy that comes with God's rescue. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the phrase, joy comes in the morning. Yeah, yeah, that would put you firmly in the Psalms. Okay. Psalm 30, to be exact. It's a psalm of thanksgiving that looks back on what God has done. The psalmist, who could be David himself, Mm -hmm. was in dire, perhaps even life-threatening trouble, and God saved him from that danger. In a statement praising God's faithfulness to protect and deliver his people, the psalmist exclaims, weeping may stay for the night, but joy or rejoicing comes in the morning. But in the context of what we're discussing here, we can't pass by Isaiah 9. That's the chapter that gives us the words, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Words that are so often associated with the birth of Jesus, and rightfully so. That chapter begins with these words, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. Leave it to Isaiah to pack as much punch as possible into this metaphor. (laughs) Yeah, there's obviously a lot we could say about this section of Isaiah and what was going on in Israel's history that would illustrate just how much punch this is packing, but the detail we'll have to wait for another episode, unfortunately. (laughs) However, here we can certainly highlight, no pun intended, (laughs) that, (laughs) that just as nothing can stop the morning light from overtaking the darkness of night, Night, no sin or rebellion can prevent God's light from breaking through and shining. Yeah. Ultimately, just as that light did indeed break through and shine in the person of Jesus, the eternal Davidic King or Messiah, to whom this passage in Isaiah 9 finally points. Well, John, as we discuss this, you brought up another well-known example of this idea. It's Lamentations 3, written Mm. in the catastrophic disaster of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple with it. And the words go, yet this I will call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yeah, great is thy faithfulness, we sing in the familiar hymn. That's one of the most clear and powerful examples of this idea, I think. And it's connected directly with hope and with the very character of God. What is new every morning with the sun's rising? Not just a better situation, but the very compassion and mercy of Yahweh, the faithful covenant God who never fails God's people. (laughs) 
John, when I think of New Testament examples of people trying to live out this joy, I can't help but think of Paul and his encounters with the town of Philippi. We spent some time with that letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. I recall that rejoicing was an important theme there. It was, and that's all the more interesting given Paul's experience in Philippi. He ended up in jail, didn't he? That's right. I'll spare everyone the details. If you want that full story, see Acts chapter 16. But Paul and Silas do end up in jail. And as the night settles, Luke tells us there in Acts that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. It doesn't say exactly that they were rejoicing, but singing hymns implies praising God. And as we've already seen, that often goes hand in hand with rejoicing. And that night takes a very interesting turn, doesn't it? Uh An earthquake comes and bursts open the doors. The jailer is about to kill himself for losing his prisoners, but Paul and Silas convince him not to do it. Mm -hmm. And they go home with the jailer Mm -hmm. and his family's converted. By the next day, Paul has played his Roman citizenship card (laughs) and the town leaders apologize for their treatment of him Although they still ask him to leave. <laughs> yes, they did. That's right. And it's that context that so fascinates me about what Paul says in this letter to the Philippians that we have further on in the New Testament. Just as a reminder, Paul is in jail again when he writes that letter, and this time possibly in Rome. Right. Paul is facing a trial, it seems. He doesn't know whether he will live or die, but he's writing the Philippians with an update nonetheless. And the tone is anything but lighthearted, and yet, at the same time, it is most certainly joyful. Exactly. Over and over again, Paul says he rejoices. He rejoices in spite of his opponents taking advantage of him. He rejoices with the Philippians for several different things. In the middle of the letter, starting chapter 3, he tells them it's no trouble to repeat what he's already told them, so they should rejoice. It was in the last chapter, chapter 4, where he pulls out all the stops. In those final admonitions, he comes back to the theme, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Right. Paul is himself suffering, as you say, unsure whether he'll live or die. The Philippians themselves have trouble aplenty. This is the place where Paul himself has spent a night in prison after being unjustly beaten. And in the middle of all this, his instructions are rejoice. On one level, that's painful to hear. How can I rejoice when I don't feel like rejoicing. Yeah, Paul clearly understands how difficult this is, Mm -hmm. how much it runs counter to what we naturally want to do. Just a few sentences later, he writes, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The joy and the peace he's talking about do not make sense to the outside observer, given everything that Paul and the Philippians are suffering. Right. But Paul has emphasized over and over again in this letter how much God has accomplished in Jesus Christ and how important that is. That is the central theme of the letter. The joy, the cause for rejoicing, the peace that passes understanding, every bit of that depends on the way God has restored us in Jesus Christ. I don't think Paul ever invokes the metaphor of dawn breaking in this letter, but the letter exudes that powerful expectation. Paul and the Philippians are surrounded by darkness. Light is coming, though, and they rejoice in that anticipation. (music) 
John, as we survey these examples from Scripture, it strikes me that Scripture never treats joy as facile, lightheartedness. It always acknowledges the pain and difficulty of those who are expressing or attempting to express joy. That's right. Joy, as Scripture describes it, is based on what we know about God. Mm. I know God. I know God is with me. I know what God can do if not exactly what God will do, (laughs) I know that God will ultimately set things right. What joy I have is based on that. And as we noticed, when I express joy, it is often expressed side by side with praise to God. All this is frequently bolstered with that powerful metaphor of the dawn. We may be in darkness now, but light is coming. Exactly. It's a tradition the Old Testament prophets and poets knew well, and one they relied on frequently. It's no surprise, then, that the New Testament authors would describe the arrival of the Messiah like the light of a new dawn spreading over people who have been living in darkness. Well, with that and with the early morning sun peeking over the eastern horizon, (laughs) we wrap up this episode in this third season of Orthodox.Faith. Yes, we have in the past kicked off a new season at the beginning of Advent. But this time, we're going to start it at the beginning of the calendar year. So Mm. 2023 will start our fourth season. And Ron, I personally think we're going to kick it off with a bang. Yes, we are (laughs) returning to a favorite topic of ours, but not one that we've dealt with at length here on the podcast. Right. We'll begin with a five-episode series on the first three chapters of Genesis. Yes. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Ron, that ought to get people's attention. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But that's where we have to conclude for now. We do wish you a Christmas season filled with true joy as we stand together in awe at the good that God has done and still will do. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.